Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I had the pleasure of being on Brett McGrath's Stacking Slabs after the Dallas Large Card Show in May. He interviewed me. This is an excerpt uh, from his excellent interview <laughs> that I really enjoyed. I strongly suggest just subscribe to Brett's stuff. He's got a great show and listen to the whole thing. Thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huckett and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsi.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Thanks, Brett. Again, check out uh, Stacking Slabs. So here it is. It seemed that most people who are at a table set up or looking to sell their cards for cash weren't necessarily looking to trade. What does that say about the current state of the hobby? Is that just business as usual? Well, it's business as usual compared to the way it used to be. It's not business as usual compared to the way it was six months ago. Six months ago, there was a lot of buying. Trading is problematic for a dealer. He doesn't want to trade his huge card for four pretty good cards. That's what a lot of the people walking up want to do. They're there to sell. But if they're not there to buy, when people come up and say, hey, I got these cards for sale, do you want to buy them? If they're slab, authenticated, after all, you're the stacking slabs guy, then that ought to be currency. But I think fewer of the show dealers were buying compared to six months ago because it's not a straight up market anymore. It's a mixed market. Some things going up, some things going down. But that's the way it's always been until 2020. When everything was going up, every dealer would buy anything where the uh, person walking up the table did not have the access to the latest information. Now, I think there's more information out there. When a collector or an investor walks up to a dealer's table who's paid money to be there, the collector paid 10 bucks, they walk up and they want full retail or they want the latest comp. They want you to match the highest price. What's in that for the dealer? Unless the card is continued to ascend, it's, it's not a good deal for the dealer. We're in that limbo period where it's no longer a sure thing. It seems that over the last couple months, any market is going to ebb and flow. There's people out there talking about the, the sky is falling sentiment with just the market as a whole, where I think maybe some pockets of cards might be going down, but not others. There's a lot of people who jump back into the hobby, who listen to this show, who are trying to get educated and learn. How do you best give advice to people that the cards might be going down, but it might not be forever. What can build confidence in our hobby with them? The hobby is many things to many people. And when somebody first gets into the hobby, they don't have to permanently pick their lane, but they really ought to focus on something because it's too big to digest. If you're coming back from a 20-year hiatus, even more, you've got to take the pulse and get comfortable with what you want to do, study it up a little bit, find some dealers or people in the industry you can trust, some trusted voices, even podcasts, whatever. YouTube. Once you do some of that, your own research and narrow it down to something you get your hands around, then, then hopefully you won't get burned. But when prices double, not everybody's happy about that. When prices drop in half, not everybody's sad about that. It's more complicated if you're new to the hobby and you have some discretionary funds. I think it's the greatest hobby in the world. So just enjoy, but don't think it's a get rich quick thing. Record sales of cards happening everywhere, right? There's auction houses, cards going for all-time highs. Those are typically the, the stories that get picked up in mainstream media. Then people who might have some interest in the hobby see those headlines get drawn back in. And there's just this m misconception of, I need to go out and get those cards. The fact that a lot of publicity in the industry is about the glamour cards, the, the world record prices. If you read the Wall Street Journal, they're talking about the most successful companies. You read the New York Times, the headlines are made by the biggest and the best. So when you're dealing with some of these really expensive cards, they're aspirational. 
And part of the success of breaking is that you have a chance to get a life-changing card in some of these breaks. That's not going to happen in every industry. But in our industry right now, if you get one of these very tough cards, you're set. It makes up for all the losses. Breaking is for some people, but obviously with that, there is gambling. And I'm of the mindset that it's hard to focus a lot of your energy, time, money in that bucket, wishing and hoping for the best. Maybe start small, meet people, get active, and then grow from there. The more you grow, your cards will get bigger because you'll learn how to better operate. And I think breaking is a wonderful thing in our hobby. But is there a, a balance between maybe starting small and then doing some breaking? There are no rules, Brett. People can enjoy it the way they want to enjoy it. With breaking, you mentioned that it's gambling. Well, in a sense, it's gambling. In a sense, it's not. In the sense that it's not gambling is the same thing as the uh, MIT guys that got kicked out of Vegas for card counting in uh, blackjack. They had a system. They were able to work that system. That's not gambling for them. Okay. The same thing happens in breaking. If you do the numbers, there are certain products that if you buy into the break at a certain price, your expected value is actually above what you're paying to be in that break. If lotteries were not paramutual, in other words, the state, the government taking their cut off the top and splitting the rest, it's above paramutual. If the total payout, then it's a classic Harvard Business School case that you'd buy all the lottery tickets if the lottery paid out more than what was put in. And of course they don't. But with cards, it sometimes does. You'd buy as much as you could if the expected value was greater than the cost of entry. So it's not gambling. Okay, now you could lose, just like the MIT guys can lose, but over time they will win. So they don't see it as gambling. They see it as a system that the law of large numbers then works for them instead of against them. That's why Vegas barred them and kicked them out. I love that. So if you are willing to do the work and understand how the cases are packed and how the breaks work, if you do that work on the back end, then you can come into a break more intelligent and more informed, and you can place yourself in better odds with the money you spent. Before I jump in, I'm gonna watch a break of that product. And most people lose, okay? But the occasional winner and the chance of that is so great, or the payout is so great that you're willing to lose and then win big. And it makes up for all the losses. Again, hypothetically, not always true, but sometimes that's been true. That's why you've seen the you know case and box prices increase especially in the last year, because the maximum card, the analysis they do, Brett, I'm getting statistical now, but the analysis they do is, is too simplistic. They look at what's the best thing I could get, even though it's a one in a million, but what's the best card in this product? If it's a $100,000 card, they're looking at that. If there's a one in a million chance of getting a $100,000 card, that's not very good odds. Now, you must, somebody's going to get it, though. They don't look at all the other ancillary intermediate cards that you can get, just like lottery. You're not going to be the big winner. But again, lottery, gambling, and the deck is stacked against you. Cards is better than lottery. The odds are better. I love that. You, you mentioned there are no rules. I think the lack of regulation, the lack of rules pro provides freedom and an open canvas for collectors to approach the hobby any which way they want. There's the long game of people who've been in the industry for a very extended period who has seen the different waves of things come and go. There's new people entering the hobby every day, trying to learn and figure out their place. What's helped me out as I've come back is just trying to build lanes and build a process around my activity. Do you find it, while there are no rules, important to build some sort of process to the way you're approaching the hobby? What I say about myself, I'm a law-abiding rule breaker. 
In other words, I, I, I don't respect rules just for the sake of rules. I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to go to jail for anything. But it's like Tony Larusa with the uh, unwritten rules of baseball. That's his opinion. That's the way it was. A lot of entrepreneurs get started by breaking these uh, conventions or rules or the way it's always been done. You can do something different. You can say, I don't want to collect rookie cards. I think the next great thing is going to be last cards or second year cards. And if 99 people out of 100 say you're stupid, Maybe you're stupid, but maybe you're just the first in line for the new way. The no rules are you can collect the way you want to collect. If you're investing and gambling, you're betting on your ability to spot a trend or to buy or to be able to sell. You need some edge. And if you don't have an edge or some approach, then what I'm saying is that there are some rules and you can ignore them potentially at your peril, but potentially starting a new trend to not even think about it and not have any focus. In 2020, in the summer, you could have done that and it wouldn't have mattered. You would have done well. But in this new market that's mixed, there's lots of alternatives. You got to figure out short game or long game, big cards or medium cards or small cards. Totally. You mentioned having an edge. I think one of the ways we can gain an edge is adopting some new technology in the hobby. I still think there's a lot of opportunity for new technology to pop up to support the infrastructure that's growing in the hobby. But I think there's some great platforms that currently exist that if you just spend some time on it and start understanding maybe some trends, data over time, then you can start maybe forecasting or making predictions on what the best next thing is going to be and you've got some data to help inform that decision that's coming from companies and people that are building technology that is available for everyone to subscribe to the real breakthroughs come when you get ahead of the trend not just here's the trend but discovering the next trend i'm not sure technology is going to determine that most of these products are very helpful about determining the movement of cards and market movers and card ladder. They're telling you what's happened over the last three months or three years. None of them can tell you what's going to happen in the next three months or the next three years. I'm not being facetious about this, but there could be a contrarian fund that says, we're going to be very quietly buying up cards that have not gone up. Good cards that have been stagnant for the last three years. Things are not trending. Okay, That's the road less traveled. Those are the opportunities that excite me the most and excite a lot of other people in the hobby is there's this desire to find the next big thing before anyone else. When I was at the Dallas show, I was looking across the tables and a lot of the cards that I saw, I'm not, I don't have a price guide in my head, but I, I do look at card ladder quite frequently and know what the bigger cards are going for and where they're at. But I saw a lot of cards were listed above comps, your perspective on pricings and you created first pricing guide and Beckett, like how do you see pricing today? It's constantly evolving and there's a lot more digital data that's more easily wrestled with. We had to go find the data and enter the data. A lot of the eBay data is uh, available for not just scraping, but there's access that they will allow. There's always been a tension between the dealer and the collector, the investor, the seller and the buyer. And the seller is always going to try to point to the most favorable comps or the price guy that has the highest price the collector, the purchaser is always, yeah, but here's what it sold for in a nine condition, but it's a BGS nine, which is different than a PSA nine. And it's a weak BGS nine with the minimum subgrades you could get for a nine. It's not a true comp, but the less sophisticated, less studied person is going to say, yeah, nine's a nine. 
that buy the holder, not the card, which I think is opposite. So yeah, the fact that there's a dynamic interchange between the buyer and the seller is healthy. It's a wrestling to see who really wants it more. That's why there's brokers in real estate. The job of the broker is to get the seller down and the buyer up. There are not really that many brokers in the hobby, but you're at a table, you're doing your own negotiation and you're trying to figure out, can I get him to come down? He's trying to figure, can I get you to come up? When they meet, it happens a lot now. It's but like, price like, guides are the equalizer to put an equal basis of knowledge on both sides of the table. That was one of my goals when I got started. I think that is true of the market movers guys and the card ladder guys too. To level the playing field, allow for a healthy, dynamic, competitive uh, marketplace. When people have trust, they're more willing to spend money. 100% on the trust. Now, make your words of wisdom. There's a two-by-two two matrix that is done in, in MBAs where there's competence and consciousness. You start out being unconsciously incompetent. You don't even know what you don't know. If people just come to that realization, then I really don't know. So the first step is to be consciously incompetent. <laughs> hey, at least I realize I don't know everything. I don't know everything I need to know. Then after that, you're going to be consciously competent, which, as you've said, it sounds like you're a really good example. Is that you've got a lane. You've got some things you really know. If you stick to them, you're probably going to do well. So you're consciously competent. Okay. The final nirvana is unconsciously competent. That's very few people. Rob Veras is probably in that category that he can know pretty instantly if he wants to buy somebody's whole table. And his son, Ryan, is following in the footsteps of Rob. And so he's more savvy on some of the huge cards where Rob is long tail. Unconscious competence is where, and again, probably nobody can know everything. Rich Klein, my good buddy, was very involved in the Almanac. So he, and I have a really good long tail understanding, but nobody can do everything. So conscious incompetence moving into conscious competence in a certain area that's well-defined. I got confidence that I can do this, that I know how to do this. I'm not going to get burned. All things being equal. The man in the house of God.